Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and today I'm excited to have Michael Cardmon, who's the founder of Forum Ventures, a leading uh, seed stage SaaS venture uh, VC firm. Uh, Michael has done his MBA from Columbia Business School. Uh, thanks to Sandy Corey from the Horizon Venture Capital for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. So, um, so you know, I, uh, you've been a part of some uh, great startups. I just wanted to understand, you know, how did you get into this crazy world of startups? Yeah, I was, uh, I was working for a family business, which worked with a lot of very kind of mom and pop small businesses. And uh prior to business school and just wanted to do something that was, that was kind of could be at a bigger scale. And uh, I went to business school and met people in the tech world and venture and startups and just, just got obsessed with getting into tech and decided after business school, I was going to move out to San Francisco and, uh, and try to, you know, break into, break into tech and ended up interviewing at, you know, startups and mid-sized companies and big companies and Ended up landing at uh, Box when it was about twenty-five people. Um, mostly not not because I had some you know amazing foresight that they were going to be a big company someday. I had no idea how to evaluate that at the time, but um, it was more they were they were giving me more responsibility than I probably deserved, just given it was a startup and they needed help with a lot of different things, and uh, and so it felt like I was going to be able to have a bigger impact sooner and learn a lot. And it was it was a fun kind of culture and time to be in the company and and so made the made the decision based on that um and so i ended up joining that in 2008 and then i've been in tech tech ever since got it and uh, you know you've been into sales and partnerships and and so have i you know i focus a lot of time on business development partnerships for for listeners you know who who are building a career you know what are some of the kpis a, a partnership guy or somebody somebody bd guy should uh, should really look at and what what did you really look at at box yeah, so with at Box when I joined, it was they were they were still primarily focused on consumer acquisition and trying to get kind of consumers in and the freemium model and and they were just at the early stages of kind of transitioning to B two B and so a lot of the partnership stuff was just figuring out like how do you get more you know either distribution into B two B how do you drive more leads for the sales team how do you like build credibility in certain industries and and so I think the First and foremost, in, in BD can mean a lot of different things to a lot of companies. And I think a lot of it is just getting aligned with the leadership team and the sales org on what are the goals of the BD team? Because there are, they could be very sales driven where you have like quotas and top of funnel, like SQL type, type quotas around it. Or it could be more around building like brand credibility in certain industries so that you know, maybe your close rate gets better in those industries. So as an example, we did a deal with like the American Bar Association to try to get more, build more credibility in the legal vertical so that we had an easier time selling into law firms because we had some early traction there and wanted to get more. And so they were, you know, in theory, they could have been like a distribution partner, but it was mostly about like the credibility of having the stamp of approval of the American Bar Association. So it's it's most aligned on like, what are the goals of BD of the BD function and then kind of setting KPIs around those goals. And that can be different for every company. Mm, got it. Interesting. You, you mentioned about the freemium model and I recently had Rob Walling, uh, who used to run drip earlier. And he mentioned like, like, uh, 
like freemium model could uh, most people should not run a freemium model until unless like they're a b2c product but what, what are your thoughts on that uh, you know for b2b saas company should they have a freemium model yeah i mean so like when back, you know it was a long time ago and back still has has it uh, i think they still have it now um and there's been a lot of successful companies built on the freemium model i i think it's hard to say you should or shouldn't uh, again i think it kind of depends on the product and you know who's ultimately buying it and using the product um and i think there are some cases where it makes sense to do a freemium model if you need to get that like groundswell of end users to then help sell into whoever the decision maker is on a larger contract um and if getting them makes it if it's easier you know, on a free version of the product to get them in then then i think that can make sense i think the key is then figuring out like what are the triggers within your product and how your users are using your product to then start charging and i think that can be really hard to figure out sometimes for companies um but yeah i think it can work for some companies and maybe it's the best strategy for some companies depending on who their customer is got it and uh, i was interested to know you know how how did you start with uh, you know forum ventures you you've also rebranded uh, your company you know how how did that uh, happen and, and what what's the cases uh, yeah so um So I had I had worked in two different startups for about six years. I was doing a little bit of angel investing, and I was uh, I, I was I was helping some early stage companies on go to market. And I got kind of fixated on this idea that there were all these generalist accelerators like YC and TechStars and 500 startups, but there were only a few in the country focused on B 2 B SaaS at the time. And I had built a good network of kind of early executives from that first wave of SaaS companies in the Bay Area. A lot of like early Box, early Salesforce, early Marketa, Zora, companies like that. And so I thought to myself like okay if I could get a critical mass of really good kind of SaaS executives and then I kept the cohort sizes really small so we could be kind of an extension of the founding team and like be really hands on around go to market and helping to get kind of early sales and early distribution and then help with fundraising like could we build a differentiated accelerator over time uh and so I went and started socializing the idea with my network um it was also you know one of those things where I came from a very entrepreneurial family I was interviewing for venture jobs like you know it's really hard to break into venture even now and there were a lot less funds then and so I just realized like it, it was going to be really hard to break in I like I, I it was uh it's difficult to kind of differentiate the timing has to line up like there's just a lot of things that that go into it and and so I thought to myself like what if I just like maybe I can just create my my own uh even though I had very little investing track record and probably frankly had no business raising raising a fund um I decided to go for it I started socializing with people in my network ended up getting really great people who were like willing to kind of take a bet on me even though I didn't have that track record and more importantly like put in their time to help get it launched so people like Nick Meta from Gainsight CEO of Gainsight like Karen Page who was my boss at Box she was the seventh person there and there through the IPO uh Rowan Trollop who um was an executive Cisco at the time and the CEO of 59 now CEO of another late stage private company um and and then was able to kind of got them as the first three as the nucleus and then was able to kind of build around them and i told myself if i can get to a million dollars i'm going to do a first close and put myself in business and like force myself to do it uh and so got to end up getting to a million and it took about took price 6 to 8 months to get to that and i was kind of on the side to pay pay the bills and um and then launched initially under the excelprise brand excelprise was one of the one of the accelerators that existed they were in DC but they were running it part time they were winding it down so i ended up working with them licensing the brand but created a completely separate management company gplp everything 
And then, yeah, fast forward now, nine years. Um, we rebranded about two years ago from Excel Price to Forum Ventures. We're on our fourth accelerator fund, second seed fund, we, which we added about three years ago. And then we also have a venture studio and we're 27 people full-time kind of spread out across Canada and the U.S. Interesting. And, and you know, uh, you, you've been able to raise, you know, around $30 million fund. And how, how was the experience, you know, ra- raising the fund and, you know, especially for emerging managers who are listening to the call, you know, what, what lessons would you have for them uh, yeah. to raise the fund? Yeah. Yeah. So we've raised a bunch of funds. So I mentioned we're on our fourth accelerator fund. Um, the first couple accelerator funds, you know, were a grind. <laughs> The first one I raised like three and a half million for, I told you I did a million. Initially, it took me another almost a year to go from a million to three and a half. Um, and yeah, it was it was a mix of like, you know, finding those early believers and then like leveraging their networks to get intros into other LPs. And, and at that time, it was mostly like high net worth individuals. One, I got one downstream fund. And then I got kind of fortunate with like, I happened to meet I happened to get connected to someone who like had a whole thesis around investing in accelerators. And so there was just really good alignment there. And now we've got, we're kind of lucky in that the accelerator funds have performed really well. And now we have like kind of anchor LPs who just keep funding that were in that first fund too, that have scaled up and keep funding kind of the accelerator. So I don't have to spend a lot of time fundraising for the accelerator. Now they're kind of pre-filled before we even launch the next fund. And we raise a new one every couple of years. And then on the seed fund, we went back to scratch of like, okay, now we got to raise again. And oh, by the way, like we have to raise during all these like macro kind of craziness. Like the first one was, you know, mid fundraise COVID happened. And then there was a lot of uncertainty in the market. And now raising in this market is maybe the hardest I've seen since I started fundraising. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the advice I would have is like, you're going to get a lot of no's. And what I think what I did early on was spend a lot of time trying to like iterate on the narrative and convince people who are lukewarm on it, that they should buy into the strategy. And I think frankly, like getting someone turned around who initially has some is like leaning out for some reason is really hard to do, like almost impossible. And and so I think spending more of my time on the believers, like the people who have the first meeting and like, they just get it and they are aligned with your strategy and they're leaning in and like really spending time on that instead. Um, and then I think the other thing would be just, you know, really try to build top of funnel as much as possible. Like a lot of family offices are hard to find and it requires a lot of like networking and asking people for intros and just being very deliberate around that. And, um, I think it's helpful. And then also I've joined a couple emerging manager, um, communities. So I've joined like cool water capital. There's also, um, the emerging manager circle that uh, the folks at equal ventures run. And there's a bunch of other things like cool water, but I think joining those has been really helpful. And then what ends up happening is you like kind of build relationships with some of the other GPs who are maybe not necessarily competitive with your strategy and then, and then helping to share introductions to potential LPs and stuff can be, has been really helpful for building top of funnel. Um, so those are some of the things that some of the learnings I've had over the years and in, in all the fundraising I've done for just it's been a decent amount. I feel like I've been fundraising constantly for nine years. So. Yeah, you know, totally get that. And uh, you, you know, you you look at investing into uh, you know close to around seventy five companies per year. And you know, what what are some of the qualities and characteristics that you look for founders and the companies that you choose to invest in? 
Yeah, yeah, and we that's actually ramped up a little bit. So we're we'll probably end up doing about a hundred to one hundred and ten companies this year through the Studio Accelerator and Seed Fund. Um, but yeah, characteristics we look for. A lot of it is is just um, you know we look for kind of founder market fit. Like, why are you building what you're building? Like, what unique insight do you have? Uh, and then I, and then I think you know when we dig a little bit deeper, it's like okay, would would we work for or work with this founder? Like, do do we think they're going to be really good at recruiting and what goes into that? So, you know, how how clearly and concisely can you kind of explain how your market's evolving and where you fit into that evolving market and how you win in that market? And, and can you confidently and clearly talk about like why you win deals against competitors and why you might lose deals today and how you'll fix that over time? Like the more concisely you can talk about the nuances of your market, the more you'll build credibility around the, your ability to navigate that market. And, and even if people don't always agree with like how you think the market's going to evolve, if you have conviction around it and can kind of show data points around why you, why you think you're going to be right and why you have early signs of your business working, like that, that's really powerful. Because um, investors don't know as much as you do as a founder about your market in most cases. And so a lot of it is the relying on your ability to explain to them how that's going to evolve. Um, and I think the more clear that you can do that, the more excited they get about the idea that you'll be able to get other people excited about your vision, which, which means like better at recruiting, better at raising capital, all of those things. So a lot of it is that we obviously look at like market and market dynamics ourselves too, but you know, we're trying to evaluate founders. And then the other is just like, are you obsessed with the business? And that's hard to tell, um, but there are certain things that we look for. Like, you know, if uh, you know, if we ask you, like, who's the biggest customer in your pipeline, and you don't know it off the top of your head, like, that's a little bit of a yellow flag of like you should be obsessing with like your business and how you grow your business and understanding who your customers are. Um, so we look for we look for things like that, like signs of kind of are you like really obsessed with this business and and building it into a big business. Today I have an interesting stat for you. Did you know that the founder of Beautiful Lives? Increase the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Very interesting. And uh, you mentioned about, you know, investing in 100 companies. So, you know, what's the ticket, ticket size that you look at, you know, and also do you look at, uh, you know, following up uh, uh, with the following? following yeah. Up? Yeah. So we have, we have three different ways we engage with founders. The way we think about it, if we're building this like platform and community instead of funds that, that we want to engage with. We want to be like the top fund in, in the world eventually for uh, B2B SaaS companies from what we call zero to sustainable and and really like negative one to zero and then and then sustainable. So we view sustainable as like series A or self-sustaining. And that's kind of the seed fund is from like, you know, accelerator to series A. And then we have the accelerator, which I view as like the zero to one phase and then kind of the studio, which is like the negative one to zero phase. Um, and so we'll do about 80 to 90 companies through the accelerator which uh, we write 100K checks initially. We're usually the first check-in or very early check-in. It's a pretty standard accelerator deal. Uh, and then we work, we're like, work as like an extension of the founding team. As I mentioned, we have a big team or 27 people full time. And we're like very hands-on on meeting with the companies weekly and all the programming and all the things you would expect from an accelerator and beyond, I think. Um, 
and then well, the studio will end up starting probably probably about eight companies this year through the studio where we're starting companies from scratch. We usually come up with ideas either on our own or with kind of corporate partners. We validate those, line customers up, and then pull a CEO in to be the co-founder with us and run the company. Um, and so the, as a CEO, you're coming into a validated idea with a team to build the MVP and money on the balance sheet from day zero. Um, so it's a bit of a de-risked way to kind of start a company. Uh, and then and then the third is out of our seed fund. So our seed fund, uh, we'll do about probably 12-ish companies, or 12, 12 or so, 12 to 15 investments per year out of the seed fund. Um, about half of those deals come from our own studio and accelerator where we're following on about half outside of it. And out of the seed fund, we're writing probably on average about five, 600K checks. Oh, interesting. Got it. And um, uh, uh, you're invested into, into you know, B-Bot, which, which had an acquisition to, to Do, DoorDash. And, you know, yeah. how, did, how did you get to meet Steve Simone? And, and how did you, you know, get the chance to lead the, lead the round there? Yeah, this is the beauty of this model. So we met Steve when he was a founder, he was the founder and CTO of another company that went through our accelerator that didn't end up working, but we built a great relationship with him. Uh, and so when he was starting, he started Bebot. It was initially a hardware business that so we weren't investing. It was outside the scope of what we were doing. And then when he pivoted to SaaS, he called me and he was like, hey, we're pivoting to SaaS. We've got great early traction. Kraft is leading the round. We've got room for like one more VC. Do you want to, do you want to come in? And so we ended up talking to him and decided to invest. And so we were the only other fund in the round uh, alongside Crafted Wedit in the seed round. And that was because we had the relationship that we had built over years through the accelerator. So even though it, you know, he didn't come into the accelerator with a second business, we ended up getting allocation in the round because of the, because of the fact that we had the accelerator um, uh, and he went through it with his previous business. And um, yeah, he's just one of those people you want to, like, he's just uh, very high motor, very smart, like, you know, really, really good founder. Um, and then, yeah, they, they ended up raising an A and then uh, getting acquired by DoorDash. And, uh, you know, especially for founders, you know, how, how do you, how can a founder get to know that when it's the right time to move up market into enterprise? Uh, and, you know, how, how does that change in the, in the world of product-led growth? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, what, I think when it starts to make sense is when, if you are starting as product led growth and kind of going bottoms up, uh, when you start to have enough kind of features from an, like security and all the features you need to sell at market and you're starting to get pull at market. So you have some people who are helping you to navigate internally to like the decision makers for an enterprise wide deployment is when you should probably start thinking about like, okay, should we start building a top-down enterprise sales motion around this and replicate what we're seeing that's happening organically across these first few, you know, maybe one, two, three customers where you've got enough of a groundswell in an organization that they're, they're starting and they like the product so much that they're starting to help navigate you to, you know, the CIO or whoever's making those enterprise-wide decisions. Um, usually it starts as like depart, you know, you get, a department on board, you get a department head to buy it, and then you start getting like more department heads. It's rare to go from like full product-led growth to enterprise-wide deployment uh, in one suite. But um, but yeah, I think once you start to see early signs of that happening across some customers organically, I think it start, you start to think about, and you have the feature set to 
support an enterprise-wide deployment, then I think you start to think about like, should you build a top-down sales motion around that? And you know, you've been part of partnerships team at Box. I was wondering, you know, when is the right time to build out channel partners? And you know, how do, how do you see channel partners change uh, the you know the structure and resource allocation at a at a company? Yeah, I think we were early at Box doing it. Um, like in hindsight, when I we've seen a lot of companies try to build out channel partnerships, and when they're too early, I think it's difficult. You rarely get out of it what you think you're going to get out of it. Because I think, you know, the reality is like, usually the channel partner is a much bigger company and like they have a much lower incentive to, to resell your product than you have for them to resell it. Um, and so I think you need to figure out like, you know, one, you need to have enough mutual customers that there's like clear use cases and examples that they can point to. And then you need to figure out like, how do you actually build relationships with not just the company and the person running the partnerships, but like the actual people who are going to be distributing it for you, like the salespeople or whoever that's going to upsell this product. And if you're not building real relationships with them and telling them how to sell it and how to talk about it and why it's going to help them get, you know, accomplish whatever goals they have, which is probably like, you know, hitting their KPIs or getting commission or whatever, then it's going to be hard. You're not going to get as many, you know, as much distribution through it as you think. Um, and so I think you have to be pretty thoughtful around it. You have to have mutual customers with that channel partner already. And I think you need to really think about what's the strategy to get the, whoever is going to be the end deliverer of your product to the customer. Like, how do you get them engaged? Why do they care? And like, how do you incent them to care so that they actually distribute it? Because so many times people are like, oh, I got some big company to distribute my product. And we got this big partnership and they're going to make an announcement. Their marketing team is going to make an announcement and we're going to get flooded with leads. And it like rarely ever happens like that. Um, so I think you just need to be much more thoughtful about it. Got interesting. And um, I want to understand, you know, what, what uh, I mean, it's been a couple of weeks now, but what really happened with, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and did it get to see, will you will it get to see a lot of great, uh, uh, you know, LP churn uh, and, and, you know, in the asset class after what has happened with Silicon Valley Bank? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know if it'll create LP churn in of itself. Will the macro environment create LP churn? Like, certainly it feels like a lot of institutional investors are, institutional LPs are not either kind of waiting and seeing, not really adding new managers. Like, they're, they're a little bit more risk averse in the sense that, like, there's like a little, in, in my experience, which may not be true and may not play out. In the, I don't know what the data says, but like anecdotally, it feels like there's a little bit of like a flight to safety where institutional LPs are like, you know what, we're going to go back to like putting money in with the big brand name funds because it's safe. And like, you know, if it's a fund of funds, like their LP is like that. If it's an endowment fund, their board likes that. Like it's just the foundation, the board likes it. So everyone, they all kind of answer to someone and, you know, it feels it's like the old adage of like, you don't get fired for buying IBM. Like, you know, I think there's a little bit of that flight to safety, which means people are more risk averse, less likely to invest in merging managers that because it's in their, in their mind, it's probably harder to pick, even though they, there's a lot of data around the fact that there's like more alpha to be had with the small emerging managers. It's just harder to pick which one is which. Um, so anyway, I, it feels like, there's some pullback from LPs. I don't think it's solely based on what happened with SBB. I think that was uh, probably a little bit of, a sh it was definitely a shock to the system 
but it wasn't the only factor in my opinion. Um, and yeah, that, that weekend was certainly stressful. Like we had a lot of companies who had money in SVB. We had, we had gotten our money out of SVB, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was a stressful weekend for a lot of people. And what's been, what's been interesting is like, who's going to fill the void that they had because we, as a fund, like I've been trying to get our fund accounts open with all the big banks and like, they want, they don't want smaller funds, right? Like you have to have a certain number of a, a certain amount of AUM to bank on the fund side. And so, uh, that's been challenging to like, you know, you have on one side, big LPs who want the money in a big account, big bank account, but the big banks don't want your fund accounts. So a lot of emerging managers are kind of stuck in this, like, you know, they have to use a different bank that maybe some LPs view as a, a little bit riskier. Um, but it's been, it's been, uh, uh, it's been an interesting few weeks or month, however long it was, but it's been, yeah. it's been yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, and I was wondering, you know, what advice would you give to your founders? Would you still advise them to, you know, work with the, uh, uh, you know, smaller banks like Mercury and uh, and you know Briggs and others, or, or, or would you still advise them to work with you know bigger, more established banks? Of what has happened with SVB? Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny in a zero interest rate environment, and before all of this happened, like no one thought about what who they banked with. It wasn't even a thing. And now, yeah, now I think we're, what we're advising is just that companies need to be more thoughtful around treasury management, right? Like they need to be probably more diversified. They should have some money with a big bank. They should have some that's like more accessible and better UI with a Brex or a Mercury. Uh, they should think about like, okay, if you've got cash sitting in your account, like how do you earn yield on that? And where where's the best place to do that? So I think what we're advising is just a more thoughtful approach to treasury management in this new world. Um, and that's probably a you know more diversification of where your money is. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Correct. And, uh, you know, especially when it comes to investors, you know, what are the, you know, a single biggest mistake you know, investors make when they analyze competition? When they analyze competition? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think part of it is just, you know, you don't want to over-index on competition. So there's two two ways people look at it of like, if you see early, you know, competition that's early, uh, but there's a lot of them, like, is that validation or is that the market's too crowded and you can't win? And so I think a lot of that is like, figuring out the market dynamics of why would this company win over the other companies that are funded? And like, is it a winner take all dynamics or not? And if it's not, you know, how big is the market? Can it support three, four or five really big companies? Um, so, you know, that's part of it. And then there's always the, like, well, what if this big company builds it? Uh, <laughs> thing that VCs ask and founders hate. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I think, I think that's, that's something that, again comes it, there's nuance to all of this but like it comes down to uh what is the product you're building how foundational is it to the big company and and do you know have they had a history of like building new products internally i think the more likely scenario is a lot of these a lot of big enterprises will acquire um and then you look at like okay is if they are going to acquire an early winner or the second place company in this space like 
is that going to be a big enough outcome depending on where you're investing and the entry price you're getting in at? Um, so I think you got to look at look at all of that stuff, but it's hard to say one size fits all here. Got it. And um, you know, what are the biggest mistakes founders make when they're presenting uh, the total addressable market, and you know how it breaks down to investors? Yeah, I I see. I mean, we see a lot of depth, and I think a lot of founders take a um, relatively unthoughtful approach to it and take like a top down, like, you know, the total spend on this very high level category of software is X and that's the size of our market instead. Of, and I, I think a, a much better way to do it and a much more nuanced and thoughtful way to do it is to take a bottoms up approach of like, here's how many customers of the types, here's our ICP or what we think our ICPs are going to be, our, our ideal customer profiles. And here's how many of them there are. And here's how much we think we can charge today or you know, eventually, and here's if it's you know smaller today than it is eventually, then like a thoughtful kind of narrative around like how you get from X to Y over time. But and then and then what's the addressable market based on that? Because that's a much more realistic version of like what your revenue opportunity is and what the market opportunity is. And I think too many founders just take this like very generic, like the CRM market is X and we play in the CRM market and um and it's not a not indicative of like what is act the actual market opportunity. Um, so I think that's one mistake we see a lot of founders make. Hmm, and um, uh, you know, with, with the new seed fund, uh, I, I think more than fifty percent of all the investments have had uh, a woman or you know otherwise underrepresented founder. But but we still see that you know I, I would say around three percent of all the VC money goes into into women founders. Uh, what can be done to you know improve? Uh, the probability for for women founders to uh, to raise more VC money. Yeah, it's a good question. I look, I don't uh, I don't have all the answers. I think what we've done, I can tell you what we've done internally, and I think we can still you know still have a lot of room for improvement. But we've been very intentional about building um, a, a very diverse team, and so I think we're probably more than half women on the team out of twenty seven. Um, and and have a lot of diversity within the team, and and then we track uh, and set KPIs around diversity within the portfolio, and we kind of view it as like we invest in a, even though we're a relatively small fund, we invest in a high volume of companies at a very early stage, and so we think you know relative to our size of fund, like we can have an outsized impact because we then also like uh, have sessions within the accelerator around the importance of building diverse teams and how making your first few hires, diverse hires can kind of set the tone and the culture for the company long-term. And, um, and so we think we can have like an outsized impact on that at the portfolio company level. Um, what funds should be doing to, you know, and, and the ecosystem at large should be doing to increase that is, you know, hard to say, I, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I'm focused on what is the impact we can have within our portfolio company and within the investments we make and, and on our own team. And, uh, hopefully we can we can make a a tiny dent in that in that terrible number, but um, it's going to take it's going to take a lot more than just this one one small fund doing that. And hopefully, I mean, there are a lot of funds kind of focused on that, and uh, hopefully, over time, we see better numbers around that. But um, I don't have all the answers. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And uh, uh, Michael, you've been in the in the, the VC industry for quite a long time, and we have seen you know ways of. 
um, crowdfunding and uh, angel syndicates with ICOs. But now, how do you see the venture capital landscape? You know, changing changing the next five to ten years. Uh, do you think you know? I mean, you, you you did mention earlier that it's difficult to get in break into the VC uh, you know circle. But how do you see? Do you see any change coming in the next uh, couple of years? Uh, so it, it it certainly ebbs and flows with the market. Like I would say, uh, in this market, there are a lot less like angel investors deploying capital. I think there are, and angelists would have all this data, but just anecdotally, it seems like there's less like rolling funds and syndicates that are deploying capital and actively at like pre-seed and seed at least. Um, and you know, there were thousands of new funds that came up that like you know, got started in 2020 and 2021. And I think a lot of those are going to struggle to raise a second fund in this new environment. And some of them will like wait it out. And when the market gets better, they'll be able to raise it. Some will raise a, be able to raise a second fund and, uh, and some won't. And so I think you'll get like a decline in the number of small funds short term here. And then the question will be like, how long does that persist? And will we eventually see a rebound with more and more funds? And I think that will partially come down to like, do you see a swing in LP dollars, right? Like do LPs get, you know, over time, get more of an appetite for emerging managers and smaller funds. And there's a lot of data that says smaller funds outperform bigger funds. And, but there's a lot of, a lot of like risk that goes into that because it's harder to, harder to decipher who's going to be the, the winners. And if you're a big endowment and have billions of dollars to deploy, like, you know, it's a lot more work to deploy a bunch of five to ten million dollar checks than it is to deploy a hundred million dollar check. So there's a lot of a lot of reasons why that may not happen. But my hope is like that shift starts to happen, which will then create a rise of more emerging manager funds again, and hopefully a more diverse set of emerging manager funds. But um, yeah, I don't. I I tend to think like the you know. I also think a lot of the big funds are going to right size a bit like everyone kind of got a you know it was an aum game in 2020 and 2021 and they raised tons of money and i think you'll see a lot of a lot of the bigger funds kind of right size back down to uh num fund sizes that make more sense given the new reality of the world where like 10 billion dollar outcomes aren't the norm anymore <laughs> like uh you know i think i think I, I tend to think at least in the SaaS world like multiples are going to normalize back back to what they were in like 2017, 2018, and we'll never see 2020, 2021 multiples again, at least not for a very long time. And um, if that's the case, like getting to $10 billion outcome is really hard. <laughs> Even getting to a billion is really hard, right? And so, um, yeah, if, you're, if you have a $5 billion fund, like the math is really hard to return that. And so I think, I think you'll start to see some of that peter out. And if, if, if they're right sizing their funds and coming down like that money is probably going to go somewhere. So maybe it gives some hope for emerging managers, but we'll see. <laughs> Got it. And um, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yeah. I, I, um, I, buy, I mean, I, I always think like the, like good to great from Jim Collins is good. And like zero to one from Peter Thiel is, is a good one. And um, how to win friends uh, is a good one. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch, but those are some of the, some of the ones that I would name. Got it. Well, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And you, you know, if you could go back in time when you when you started um, for ventures, uh, what is one thing you would have focused on or done thing differently? Yeah. I, uh, so 
I am an, in general, my personality is not an outward facing, like big personality and on Twitter and marketing. And I don't have a big, like, I don't have much of like a brand marketing background. And so I think I wildly underinvested in brand uh, for a long time. And instead was like, you know what, I'm going to focus on what I think I can be good at, which is like be maniacally focused on founder experience. And if we have enough founders that go through the program who have like an amazing experience, like we'll organically build the brand over time. And I think that's, I think that's right. It just took a lot longer than I thought it would. <laughs> and I, and I way under invested in, in building the brand and marketing. And so now over the last couple of years, we rebranded and we've been a lot more focused on building that, which has yielded just, you know, a continual growth of inbound um, for, for like applications for the accelerator and sourcing and everything. So um, yeah, that's something that like, I wish I probably invested in more early on. Correct. Mm, and uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Um, I mean, I'm in, I'm in email so much, G, you know, Gmail, but that's a, that's a, a basic one. I've been, uh, I'm a tiny angel investor in a, in a company called HyperWrite. So I've been playing around with some of their products recently within Gmail around like helping you just get faster and more efficient with, within email. Um, so that's been good. And then obviously we're on, you know, we're on Slack all the time with both our founders and internal team. Color, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, Michael, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Fortnum Ventures? Yeah, you can um, you can pitch us on on our website. You can email me at Mike at ForumVC. I'm on Twitter at MG, MG Cardamone. Um, any of those are fine. Color, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Michael, thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.